Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. I'm on my own today, as you notice. It's week 106 of the two weeks to flatten the curve lockdown. And Phelan is in Ireland on a top secret mission. So uh, he's working actually on a production that I think you guys are going to really, really like. So this week on the podcast, we're going to be joined by Saurabh Arami, who is a former opinion editor of the New York Post to talk all things Hunter and Ukraine. And you know how we all learned to distrust the WHO during the pandemic? Well, I have another reason for you to really dislike and distrust the WHO um, and to lose any faith you ever might have had in them. Um, And also the charity, amazing story, the charity Save the Children have just revealed that their top priority is not saving the children. And I watched the Oscars so that you don't have to. Um, I know, you know, I, some of you probably hate watched the Oscars. I hate watched the Oscars and it was quite an extraordinary, amazing, amazing night for all kinds of appalling reasons. I'm going to talk to you about that. And I have a little uh, recipe experiment that I want to bring you as well. And it's uh, involving the air fryer. And thank you, by the way, for all the people who wrote about the uh, Instant Pot we have one one person wrote and said, I need to hand it away. But I have two others who basically say, don't give it away. You're going to love it once you work out how to use it. I'm hoping to do this. Maybe maybe not when Phelan is away, though. I think I wouldn't like to try and experiment with the Instant Pot, blow the whole house up, you know. I think I need, I need a bit of help. But let's first of all go over to the interview I did a little bit earlier with Sora Barami. Um, and I think you're going to find it fascinating. Let's go over to that right now. So now we're joined by our friend Sora Barami who is a columnist and writer um, and the former opinion editor of the New York Post. Um, And also now he is one of the founders and editor of Compact Magazine, which is a new home for independent journalism that challenges our ruling class. Welcome, Sora. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again, Anne. It's good to see you. So I want to, we're hearing a lot about Ukraine at the moment, and I want to just bring you back to October 2020 when the New York Post published a bombshell story. Can you tell us what was the bombshell story that they posted, that they published, and and what happened to that story? Why was it important? So just to begin with, I was the um, op-ed editor at the time, so I was not involved in the reporting or editing of this story, but I sort of became one of the faces of the paper as we mounted a defense. uh, against accusations against the story, which we'll get to in a second. So the, the gist of the story was that we found emails by now this notorious laptop uh, belonging to Hunter Biden, emails on this laptop that showed that he had arranged meetings between his father, who was then the second most powerful man in the world, and the Obama administration's point man on Ukraine, on one hand, and executives from Burisma, a shady Ukrainian energy firm that was paying Hunter $83,000 a month for what services exactly, because he wasn't exactly an expert on Eastern Europe or energy affairs or anything like that. Um, so that, that was the story. It was published on October 14th, 2020, two weeks before the general election in the United States. And within hours of it going up online, Facebook reduced circulation on it and um, Twitter outright banned it from being shared. And not only banned it from being shared publicly, but it also banned users from sharing it in private direct messages. And then they suspended the account of the New York Post, uh, they being Twitter, New York Post being the oldest continuously published daily newspaper in the United States, founded by Alexander Hamilton. 
50 former intelligence officials published a letter uh, claiming that um, the story bore the hallmarks of Russian disinformation, even though they had no evidence of such. And the entire blue check media circled the wagons and, and defended the claim, just reported it, you know, almost like stenographers without questioning at all. They defended the 50 intelligence officials saying that this was Russian disinformation. Fast forward two years, we're here now. The New York Times published a story saying, in <laughs> fact, the emails were authentic. Yes, so. yes. I, and I loved, I loved where, they, where the New York Times finally acknowledged this story. Paragraph 24, I think, either 23 or 24, in a lengthy story about, about Hunter Biden uh, appearing Can in front of the grand jury. That, that, that throughout its own coverage of the story, the New York Times kept calling it unsubstantiated up to this point. Unbelievable. So. It's, it's very, it's, it's very frightening. Um, and I mean, it's kind of, is it, it uh, how unprecedented is this, a story of this magnitude being suppressed at that level, just about everywhere? How, how unprecedented is that? Oh, it was a, it was a historic moment, or let's say a historic nadir. There's never, never anything like this. Um, not on this scale, not in terms of what the media outlet targeted, right? We weren't some small, some small little blog or something like that. Sure. Like I said, it's the New York Post uh, is the nation's fourth largest paper by circulation, by print circulation. Um, it was founded by Hamilton. It's a kind of veritable American institution, right? Yes. A New York institution, but also an American institution. And so you know that it's, it's very unprecedented. And it, it's unprecedented in this way. Let me just be precise about it. That over the preceding four or five years, there had been a mountain a mountain of anti-Trump stories that appeared in left of center mainstream media that then collapsed under factual scrutiny, minimal factual scrutiny, it collapsed. Mm -hmm. Those stories, despite them having collapsed, never got banned. You could still post some of them on Twitter today. They're still there. Um, just to give you an example, I, you probably remember all this more better than I do, but um, there was this story, for example, about Cohen, Trump's attorney having this McClatchy story, supposedly gone to uh, Czech, the, the Czech Republic, gone to Prague to meet yes. with his KGB handlers or whatever. Um, the Mueller report absolutely demolished. It was a false story. He did not gone to Prague. There's just no evidence of that. It's still up. It was never banned. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. There was the story about Cohen again um, being suborned to lie to Congress by President Trump. Uh, so uh, President Trump suborned his attorney to do perjury, to commit perjury. And that appeared in BuzzFeed. And within eight hours, uh, the Mueller team released a statement disputing that story. Essentially, their source was the Mueller team and the Mueller said, no, that's not true. Unbelievable. Never got banned. Still up, in fact. Still up, yeah. Still available. Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there were so many of these over the four years with Russian collusion when it was just this ongoing obsession of the Western media class, both sides of the Atlantic, false stories, utterly sort of risible nonsense. Unbelievable. <clears throat> they never received this kind of treatment. You know what I did just before we started talking? I, because I, I just thought to amuse myself and yourself, I looked at who won the Pulitzer Prize in 2020. <laughs> and it, I mean, you love this, by the way. And you, and it's really funny when you read this. It's almost like. You, right. Do you know, so do you know who won for breaking news in in 2020? Who won the right. prize? Refresh my memory. 
Oh my God, it's so hilarious. It's basically, I'm not even going to find it right now in front of me, but basically, but um, the, the governor, yeah, I've got it here. So yeah, the breaking news reporting prize for, from the Pulitzer was for the staff of the Courier General, Louisville, Kentucky, for its rapid coverage of hundreds of last minute pardons by Kentucky's governor, Republican, um, showing how the process was marked by opacity, racial disparities, and violations of legal norms. So the Matt Bevan story was the story of the year that everyone missed. <laughs> you know, like this was this is what they decided to celebrate. Um, this is what the what the Pulitzer Prize decided was the breaking news story of the year. Um, you know, who are these people? Like, who are these people, Sorab? I don't know. You see me laughing, but it's a kind of, um, I have to say, it's that kind of weird, grim, <laughs> macabre yeah. laughter. It's not, um, it brings me no pleasure in a way. It's a sort of dark and, and depressing kind of laughter. Um, you just have a, every institution in this country that's supposed to be a national institution looking out at, uh, at all sources of power, and checking all potential sources of power and abuse, um, they um, they fail. Yeah. Not only they fail, they deliberately have abdicated their responsibility. The responsibility is to hold power accountable, no matter who wields it. This is all just so so partisan now. I mean, and and then you had all the COVID. I mean, that mountain of COVID nonsense published by the media as well. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. We brought some of those stories to light, particularly they had what the New York Times seemed to love to do would be highlight the death of a young person. And then all you had to do was do a little bit of digging on the Internet to find a photograph of said young person who is either extremely overweight to a level that was kind of, you know, very, very tragic. Or the person hadn't died of COVID at all. The person had died in, in the case of one guy that they highlighted who was this, um, who we, we talked about it. He was like this, you know, and of course they, they loved it because he was this really healthy guy. He was this athlete and he died of a drug overdose, the poor love. But I mean, nothing to do with COVID at all, but they were, they were selling it to terrorize people. And they just loved doing that. They absolutely loved doing that. Extraordinary. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember all this. So look, I, you know, I think a lot of our institutions are deeply, deeply in trouble. I would say in trouble, but that's not maybe the right, the, the precise phrase, because in some sense they persist. Yes. Either because they have their narrow subscriber base in coastal regions, liberal yep. regions, so they they don't have to worry about whether they speak to the rest of the country at all, or they have corporate backers or donors, what have you. Um, so they're 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 failed only in the sense that they fail American democracy, mm -hmm. not in the sense that. Um, they do well for themselves, the institution. Yes. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said uh, in the 1970s, he'd come to the West. He said in the West, um, unlike in the East, where the uh, the press is, you know, faces overt oppression, in the in the West we have freedom for the newspapers, freedom for the outlets, but not freedom for the reader who needs it. <laughs> oh my God! Very good. Very very precise. Is this so? I mean, you have this new um, venture, very exciting, Compact Magazine, which is available um, right now. Um, I think you had your first publication is just in a couple, a couple of days ago. It, is the reason for founding a new magazine, is, is that based on what happened in the New York Post or where did this come from? No, it's in, it's in part in, inspired by that. Um, 
the, 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 your, your listeners, viewers can access it at www.compactmag.com. Um, the founders are myself and Matthew Schmitz, who used to work at the Catholic, I should say the religious journal, First Things, um, and a third um, writer thinker named Edwin Aponte. Now, what's interesting is Matthew and I are considered of the right, but Edwin is a man of the left. Um, but we're coming together uh, to challenge this overclass, which is kind of bipartisan. It's not, it's not left or right. It's this uniparty overclass that we have that is a rapacious and corrupt overclass. These are the people who, after 9-11, plunged the West into 20 years of stupid and bloody and ultimately fruitless wars, the people who gave us the Great Recession, and the people who got, gave us the, the COVID measures that decimated small business, that destroyed millions of jobs, but enriched uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon and big box stores. Um, and they're never held accountable. Mm -hmm. And so we created this to, to do journalism that challenges this overclass, not to say that we're gonna come meet halfway, you know, the right and the left come together, meet halfway. No, we're gonna use our different lenses um, and we do have different lenses on mm -hmm. some things to, to examine these people. So for example, today's piece is by a, we publish one piece a day. Um, and right now all of our content is available for free. Um, but today's piece is by a New York University uh, uh, teacher named um, Jeff Schollenberger. And the, the headline is masks and lockdowns aren't going away. And his argument is that the only reason uh, the elite is backing off of masks and, um, and, and, and vaccine mandates is because they found another con um, crisis to kind of drive hysteria over, so namely Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But there's been no fundamental rethink of why the premises of masks and, and uh, vaccine mandates were, the premises were wrong. They're not conceding any of that. There's no reckoning about, okay, who made these decisions? Why did we continue to mask children even after we knew that they don't, um, kids don't transmit the virus the same way or the same rate as adults do? None of that is really being questioned. None of the decision makers is paying a price, except Andrew Cuomo, but he's paying a price for being a little handsy with, with women. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, they're, they're, they're all, they've gone from strength to strength and are celebrated. Um, so that's the kind of work we, we, we want to do. Um, and it's it's a it's a little bit different than what you can do at a at a big newspaper like the New York Post. It's a little bit more in depth. The the pieces take longer to cook uh, than an op-ed did when I was overseeing the op-ed pages. So yeah, I mean, I I, I hope your readers yes uh, sorry your viewers will check it out because I think we we, we strive to surprise people right we, yes. we strive to surprise ourselves in some ways by having this um, this mix of writers from left and right who may not agree on everything together, but they sense that there's something wrong. Yeah. That sense that there's something wrong with our whole struct, with our whole system is the inspiring force behind Compact Magazine. That's great. And you, your book, I wanted to ask you just before we finish up, I know we got little time today, but I wanted to ask you about your book, The Unbroken Thread, which we obviously spoke to you about the last time, which is just an extraordinary book and really highly, highly, highly recommended. And it's dedicated to your son, Maximilian, who you, um, who you called after St. Maximilian Kolbe, which is, I mean, that, that was the first time, the first time when I was reading your book that I, that I cried when I read and remembered the extraordinary story of Maximilian Kolbe. I wanted to ask you about your son, not specifically him, but children in general. So you're living in New York. Are you still living in New York? 
Yes, yes. Mm. I, I wrote a column saying I'm done with New York, but it's easier said than done to right. uproot your family. Um, so, you know, we, we, we bought a house in Florida as a sort of escape pod. Okay. <laughs> the next time something happens. Okay, well, that's interesting. Because basically, I was going to ask you about how it is, how, how are you navigating the school system in New York? And have you any advice for parents of little ones who are, so uh, are my colleague here, Magda, her son was shown a BLM video. He's four years old in preschool. And I was wondering, did you have any advice for parents in New York, for example, where, who are trying to navigate this extraordinary territory that is run by these teachers unions and ideologues? Um, any advice? So I happen to send my children, you know, we're Catholic, so I'm having to send my ch children to um, a parochial school uh, in New York City. Going to a parochial school, is no guarantee that they won't be ideologized, mm -hmm. that they won't be subjected to propaganda, but it, it, there's some limits. There's some limits. And I have to really trust our, our shepherd here in Cardinal Dolan. Um, I think he's, he's, a, he's a bulwark for orthodoxy and Catholic orthodoxy blocks out left-wing and right-wing extremism in, in both directions. It, uh, that, that it ensures a sort of soundness in that regard. But um, beyond that, I mean, first of all, being able to do that takes money, let's be honest, right? Mm -hmm. It's not everyone. I mean, Catholic schools are cheaper than straight up private schools. Um, and it's not like private schools are immune from all this. In fact, some of the worst uh, of this kind of propagandizing of children happens in very elite, expensive private schools. Mm -hmm. um, so what does that tell you? The answer ultimately is, uh, is political organization, right? We, we cannot afford to say, we're just gonna exit the system altogether and just homeschool our kids. That's to give up on millions of millions and millions of children whose parents don't have the time to homeschool, whose parents can't afford certain kinds of classical Christian academies, et cetera, et cetera. So they need help. And so I'm, I have to say, I'm encouraged by this recent wave of parents getting involved um, in school board decisions or running for school board shedding light on what what's happening in these schools that's that's the answer not retreat we can't yeah, retreat because yeah. these, they will come for the small classical christian academies anyway they're not going to leave you alone it's literally i think it's literally one of the the few good things that came out of covid was that parents suddenly started to engage in curriculum and understand yes. what children were being what was what was being forced on children you know um extraordinary what's new york like right now then i mean is, are things sort of back to normal yeah, the the truly all the mandates, as far as my daily life goes, seem to have been lifted. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's yeah. very good. Um, but but the, but, but but you but you have, as you say with your columnist today, there you you think your your columnist anyway is certainly saying that um, we're going to see masks for the foreseeable future. They're going to come back. They're keeping these measures in reserve to use them when they need to. I think, and I, our columnist thinks. Um, and also, I have to say, my own neighbors and people in the city will, will some of them refuse to give up. I mean, they're yeah. still double masking outside. I, I, I really don't get this. It's like, it's every scientific paper you can look at says there's no outdoors transmission or is unbelievable. No, I mean, I was on the, I was literally on the beach yesterday and like it was quite windy and lovely air and all of that. And there yeah. were people wearing like major, major muscles, like massive uh, masks and young people, by the way, wearing, wearing this. And it's like, you know, God, what's wrong with people? It's extraordinary. By the way, did you watch the Oscars um, 
<laughs> last night. I, I used to watch the Oscars. I've sort of tuned out. Um, but I yes, I saw the I saw the slap heard around the world. Yeah, well, you know, it's very interesting that slap, by the way. I mean, they make, they've made a big deal about the slap, but it's interesting that they missed out on the fact that there was a joke made about Will Smith and his wife prior to that. Did you see that? Um, the joke that was made prior to the, the G.I. Jane joke was um, someone made a joke about their open marriage because they're very famously have an open marriage and uh, that went down fine. They thought that was really funny. So it's quite funny what people are sensitive about in Hollywood. And... Um... I don't know. To me, it suggests open marriages may not be so happy. Yeah, yeah. Very weird. One of those parties. Anyway, listen, this has been great and really appreciate your time. And thank you for kind of walking us through what happened. Um, extraordinary. And as we say, the New York Times has finally decided that, yes, there's a laptop, but there's still, but there's still, you know, that should have been the headline story. Um, and obviously they didn't give it a headline because they're still hiding it, still suppressing it. Maybe Elon Musk um, will start Twitter. What do you think? Start an alternative Twitter. What do you think of that idea? Uh, I, there have been attempts, you know, and ha they haven't really worked out. I think that partly because the tech is lousy and partly because the existing tech companies gang up to suffocate yeah. these new alternatives, yeah. like Parler happened with Parler. So I think it's very important that, um, this needs a political so solution. The corporations yes. are acting politically. Yeah. So even if Elon Musk does something nice, that doesn't, that doesn't mean we should give up on seeking a political solution with what Facebook and Twitter are doing. Good idea. Good pun. All right. Well, then, listen, thank you so much for your time today. We really thank appreciate you. it. Really good to see you. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Best of everyone there. Bye. Oh, what a gift, Sorab is. And please do go and check out his new magazine, Compact Magazine. Uh, as he said, it's free right now. Um, and the subscriptions, I think, will start in about three weeks. But it's worth going over there and checking it out right now um, and see what you think. But yeah, the WHO, um, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people had had issues with the WHO, had issues with their cosy relationship with China, the lack of, you know, the fact that they weren't throwing China under the bus. And just to remind people, by the way, about China, according to Johns Hopkins, which a lot of people would say is a very reliable place to get information about all things COVID and COVID related, according to Johns Hopkins, more people died in Ireland than died in China from coronavirus. That's Johns Hopkins for you. And the WHO also did a lot of yeah, ran interference, I think, for the Chinese, particularly in relation to the origins of the Wuhan uh, virus. Um, but this latest story from them really, I think, tops everything else you've ever heard about the WHO. So they have just um, published a report where they've demanded an end to all limits on abortion. The agency says laws preventing termination at any point risk violating the rights of women, girls, or other pregnant persons. And by the way, the inclusion of other pregnant persons, by the way, other than women or girls, is another reason for you to never trust them about anything. These people can't even work out that only women and girls can have babies. Other pregnant persons. So that's that wokery that they're just, you know, obsessed with. But this is, an to me, this is just an extraordinary thing. This is beyond, like, this is... There's something very, very disturbing about this. The world's most influential health organisation is calling on governments to scrap the legal time limit on abortion. New guidelines issued by the World Health Organisation claim laws preventing abortion at any point during pregnancy risk violating the rights of women, girls or other pregnant persons. But by the way, this comes on the heels of the Royal College of Midwives in the UK. The Royal College of Midwives in the UK who called for this and have been pushing for this for about the last six years. 
So the WHO think we should allow abortion under all circumstances, ruling out any laws that ban terminations because the fetus is the wrong sex. The wrong sex, right? When the baby is the wrong sex. That, that, you know, that's, that's a really good reason to have an abortion and you shouldn't have, that shouldn't be banned. Stop women requiring approval from a doctor or nurse to have an, an abortion. Roll out pills by post scheme so the women can be sent abortion medication over the phone, uh, after a phone call. And curtail medical professionals' rights to refuse to take part in abortions on conscience grounds. So to take away the right of a, of a nurse or a doctor to say, look, I don't want to have anything to do with this because of my conscience. So this is what the, this is what the WHO, you know, the WHO, the World Health Organization, as I said, leading health organization, this is what they are now proposing, you know, to get rid of any unnecessary policy barriers to safe abortion, including limits on when abortion can take place. And by the way, this document is 210 pages long and not anywhere, not anywhere, not for one second, not for one sentence, not for one one word do they mention anything to do with ethics or to do with the ethical you know quandary that this might uh, might uh, you know create just extraordinary i mean even you know even places like europe which is very very liberal have limits on when you can have an abortion except for of course the uk which allows abortion right up to 9 months in the case of hair lip by the way cleft palate or down syndrome extraordinary kind of amazing that people would actually do that. The WHO is also silent on sex-selective abortion despite the termination of female fetuses being common in countries such as India, Pakistan and China. So, so much, so much for women's, so much for women's rights. Just extraordinary. That, I mean, it's worth reading the whole, the whole story about the WHO. It's just very, very disturbing. But Save the Children, which is an international charity, have now um, sent back a donation of £750,000. That's a huge amount of money. That's basically a million pounds. A million dollars, I should say. They've basically sent back a million dollars from a North Sea gas firm, so a fossil fuel, an evil fossil fuel company, who wanted to give £750,000 to save the children um, for their help with their efforts in the Ukraine. But no, the Save the Children, their, their priority, though, is... Um, apparently the carbon footprint of some of these fossil companies, fossil fuel companies, and they're not going to, they're not going to take, they're not going to take the money. So I think anyone who is planning on giving money to save the children, obviously they don't need your money. Obviously they don't need the money because they're able to send back this kind of money in the middle of an extraordinary crisis where children and, and their mothers are, you know, refugees, the largest refugees since, since whenever. I don't know of any time in history there's been so many refugees. Extraordinary. It's not the only charity, by the way, that is kind of extraordinary that I've just found this story out. And I just think, given the fact that we're doing this movie, we're doing this film about, about Hunter Biden, about the Biden family. Some of you will probably know this, that when Bo Biden died, Hunter Biden's brother died, they started a charity called the Bo Biden Foundation for Abused Kids, which is kind of amazing, by the way. So they have the Bo Biden Foundation for Abused Kids. This is a family who have a grandchild that they have never met. This is a family who have a grandchild, the child of the stripper that Hunter Biden is paying, you know, has had to acknowledge paternity, a a woman he had a relationship with for over a year. And here's this child that is being ghosted by the President of the United States and his, all of his family, never met him. But anyway, the Bo Biden Foundation was started about a month after uh, uh, Bo Biden died. And just a very interesting little factoid about it. In 2020, the charity had $4 million. 
How much do you think, this is like fingers on the buzzers here, how much of the $4 million that they had in 2020 do you think they spent on children and abuse children at that? How much of that budget went to children? And I went and I got my calculator out and I worked it out. So they actually spent 13.7% of the money of the $4 million. 13% of the money was spent on children. So where did the rest of the money go? To a lot of salaries, to a lot of people. I just think that that's hysterical. I mean, this is really extraordinary. 13% of $4 million actually went to doing what the charity was set up to do. And there were basically the people on the charity. And by the way, in 2020, guess who was on the board of the charity? Our old friend, Hunter Biden. Lots of the family have been on the board over the years. And they're... The other, me- the other members of the board, the other people who are earning a lot of money are people who, you know, have very close ties with the Biden family over many years. And talking of charity, another really awful story to bring you. Um, so Jeff Bezos's wife, now uh, ex-wife, uh, has a lot of money, an extraordinary amount of money. It's like she's won the lottery, you know, a gazillion times over. And she has been giving out money. She's been handing out money to charities. Um, in fact, she has just sent out $12 billion. But one of her gifts, um, you know, has made headlines because it's a historic gift. It's the biggest gift ever to this particular charity. And that charity is Planned Parenthood. So she has given $275 million to Planned Parenthood. Um, basically, and she's said, she's actually said that she really wants the money to be targeted at minorities and particularly black women. So basically, she is giving this huge amount of money to help black women have abortions to actually reduce the population of black people in America. Am I, am I missing something here? Is that, uh, is that not what would happen if you devote a huge amount of money to helping black women have abortions? This is what she's chosen to do with her money. Extraordinary. Did any of you watch the Oscars, by the way? Who watched the Oscars? I did so that you didn't have to. And I kind of hate watched it. But by the way, it went on forever. I think it started. I think I feel like I started watching it at five o'clock um, Pacific time. And I think it ended at like nine. Unbelievable. Um, you know, the, the Oscars have been having a problem, a massive problem lately with um, the fact that the ratings are terrible. Nobody wants to watch this show. I mean, it's really, really bad. But however bad it is, it's about to get much, much worse. So they're going to bring in a new rule at the Oscars and they're going to disqualify movies that don't have enough black, gay or disabled actors by 2024. And in fact, the rule is, the rule that they're going to bring in is that you have to have 30% 30% of the cast have to be either black, gay, or disabled. I mean, can you try, just try and think about the number of movies that that would mean you couldn't really make anymore? What about period dramas sent in, like, Scotland or Ireland? Like, how, would, how exactly would that work? And, it's, you know, it's a reaction to the fact that they, were, they came under such criticism for the Oscars so white, you know. Um, but the show was extraordinary, in, extraordinary in every kind of awful possible way. So the three women, three women um, were the presenters and, you know, the, the show started and almost immediately you had Amy Schumer um, who apologised almost immediately for being white. Two minutes later, they had a big joke about Mitch McConnell and his toxic masculinity, apparently. And literally two minutes after that, they went after um, Governor Ron DeSantis and did a whole gay night, gay night, LOL, you know, gay night, gay night, um, which, of course, 
the, the word gay is not anywhere. It doesn't appear anywhere in the Florida bill. Um, just awful. And the first prize then, just, you know, like it literally was one woke thing after another. The first prize um, that w- was given out of the night was to a, a woman called Ariana DeBose for being, and, and, you know, she herself called herself the first openly queer woman of colour, an acting Oscar, excuse me, for her portrayal of Anita in the West Side Story. Phelan and I tried to watch West Side Story. Um, I don't know if you've tried to watch West Side Story. It's uh, pretty, it's, it's unwatchable. I don't know, I have no idea why there's, n- there's any need at all to remake a, a movie that was, was done well in the past. Um, yeah, unwatchable. Um, and But everyone is talking about this one big story, this one big story about uh, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. And, it, you know, it was weird. The whole thing was really weird. But I, as I said earlier in the interview with Saurabh, the thing that I found really weird was that Regina Hall made a joke about Jada Smith and Will Smith's open marriage. And apparently that was fine. Like, that was fine to make that joke. And they thought that was really, really funny. But making a joke about um, GI, about the hair situation, apparently uh, Will Smith's wife, Jada Smith, has alopecia. Chris Rock made a joke about G.I. Jones. Whatever. Anyway, he got slapped for that. You know, there were a few other moments in the show that I think are definitely worth mentioning. I mean, Regina Hall, the comedian, apparently, she took an opportunity at one point um, when Josh Brolin and Josh Moma, both of them came to the stage to give out a prize. And she went up and she was doing this whole very funny, (laughs) so funny joke about that she was she had been asked by the Oscar committee, you know, to do sort of COVID tests on all these people. And she basically started feeling up both of these men. And I just thought, can you imagine for a millisecond if the tables were turned and if a man had done that to two women presenters, well, we'd never hear the end of it. They'd end, they'd end up being, being uh, arrested or something. And talking about Will Smith, we have an interesting connection with Will Smith. Um, when we were making the movie about Kermit Gosnell, Dr. Kermit Gosnell, the convicted child murderer who is serving three life sentences in Huntington Prison for delivering babies alive and then cutting their necks with scissors, um, we talked to him. We talked to Dr. Kermit Gosnell a lot. We, we had lots and lots of phone calls with him. We met him in prison. Um, and during one of the phone calls, Phelan was asking him, you know, did he know any famous people? You know, and I can't even remember the origins of the, of the conversation. But guess what transpired? Will Smith was delivered by Kermit Gosnell, America's biggest serial killer. So that's an interesting little angle on this. Let's have a listen to the tape of Phelan finding this out. So you're saying that you delivered Will Smith, the actor? Yeah, yes. I wouldn't say we were friendly, but we knew each other and had a very positive relationship. And not only that, we, uh, you know, Gosnell obviously was very cooperative. I don't know what he was thinking, but he, you know, he, he wrote lots of letters to us. Um, he sent us loads of letters of his. He got photocopies of things he'd sent to other people. And he sent us a letter he had sent to Will Smith, asking Will Smith to help him because Kermit Gosnell's son was a struggling actor and, you know, he was trying to get him, you know, help in this world. But the one line from the letter that I just adore is that he says to Will Smith, you know, I like to pride myself. Wait till I see exactly how he says it. I'm fond of asserting that there would never be a man in black if I had dropped you on your head. What a sweetie. There was another moment, by the way, Jamie Lee Curtis came on stage with a rescue dog, you know, and basically said, you know, 
rescue dogs. And I just thought it was hilarious. This is the same Jamie Lee Curtis who during the pandemic, you know, did an advertisement, a free advertisement for Planned Parenthood to say to people, you know, oh, I know you probably want, you know, oh God, so terrible because of, because of COVID. Um, she told them, you know, she gave them a telephone number that they could phone where they could obviously order up abortion pills over the phone. So, you know, and there she is with the rescue dog and doesn't seem to see any kind of, you know, connection between those two things. So I decided... I'm really loving the air fryer. I think the air fryer is great. Again, I, as I said, I'm going to I'm going to do something about the instant pot, but um, but the air fryer. I decided to try a little experiment with the air fryer, and so basically cut a banana up. We're just going to basically, you know, put put the banana into the air fryer. But obviously, one of the things that you need to do is you need to oil up the air fryer, otherwise the food sticks. Honestly, the banana stuck a little bit, so I didn't put on enough oil. And maybe it would be better actually to have painted each of those bananas with a little bit of that coconut oil. And I used coconut oil because of the taste. So basically, I would say five minutes, about five minutes at 400. Um, But keep an eye on it. Look at this. Look look at the lovely caramelisation, the gorgeous caramelisation. Really nice smells as well. Really, really fast, easy dessert. I put some coconut flakes over that and a little bit of cream. Mm. Mm. What would be really nice would have been ice cream with that. Yummy, yummy, because the contrast of the really cold with the really yummy, warm banana. Very, very nice, very fast dessert. And I'm presuming you can do it with frozen bananas, uh, but check that out. But as I said, we've come to the end of the show. Thank you very much to everyone who's been writing and saying really nice things about the podcast. We really appreciate it. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. Don't forget to donate to help us to keep lights on. I mean, when you see what, you know, Jeff Bezos' wife is doing with her money, you know, um, please, if you if you believe that what we do is helpful and um, that we are making a difference, please do donate. And all you've got to do is go to unreportedstoriesociety.com and give what you can. We are so appreciative of you. Last year, you know, you 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 made the you made the movie a whole movie possible. You know, this is this is who you are, and we are so grateful because we love doing what we do. We want to keep on doing it. Um, but that's it from me for this week, and hopefully we'll have Phelan with us next week. Uh, but we'll see. And until then, take care. Have a great week. Bye.